One size fits all seemed like a good idea for clothes. Nice dress. Uh, it's a it's a T-shirt. Until you tried it on. Same goes for your health care. That's why United Healthcare offers a variety of flexible, budget-friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. So whether you're between jobs, coming off a parent's plan, or even missed open enrollment, you can find the plan that fits you best. Find out more about United Healthcare coverage at uh1.com. That's uh1.com. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. PlushCare is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at PlushCare.com slash weight loss. That's PlushCare.com slash weight loss. PlushCare.com slash weight loss. Welcome to the Osher Ginsberg podcast. I'm Osher Ginsberg, and hello from a kitchen in Berlin. Uh, sorry about the audio quality. I'm traveling, but don't worry, the interview is slick. Today's guest is Imogen Bailey. Follow her on Twitter at Imogen, I M O G E N underscore Bailey, B A I L E Y. More about her in a moment. This is episode 51. If you're new, hello. There are 50 other episodes for you to check out. Um, quite the back catalogue. I hope you enjoy it. There's a lot going on there. Thank you very much to everybody that contributed a question to the anniversary show. Next week is my 52nd show, my one-year anniversary of this show. Wouldn't have been here without you. So I want to do a Q&A with you. You've got until Thursday, Australia time. That's Wednesday in the US to get your question in. If I use your question on the show, I will send you a special something in the mail, an actual physical thing in the post. Yes, the mailbox. It's not just for bills. So please, ask me anything. Ask me anything. OsherGinsberg.com. Leave me a voicemail. There's a widget on the right of the page, or you can send me an email. Send Osher email at gmail.com. Hope your week's been good. I finished my uh, the first part of my school in Amsterdam, so I'm taking a few weeks to just kind of hang out 
in Europe, as you do. Um, I'm in Berlin visiting family. It's superb to be here. I've actually got a long lost cousin here. Yeah, I do. Someone that I only got to meet a few short years ago. And it's superb to hang out with her. She's awesome. She played a very she's played a very powerful role in my life. Certainly helps to have a cousin who studied psychology when you live with anxiety. She's very rational to talk to when my brain decides to be kind of creative with possible outcomes to situations. I'm sure you know what I'm talking about. Berlin, though, my goodness, what a city. What a city. The former drinker in me is a little sad that I discovered this place after I lost my drinking privileges. But the sober part of me is happy that I came here after I stopped drinking because I reckon that if I came here when I was still partying, I don't think I ever would have made it out. <laughs> I'm staying in the gay part of town, which is always the best part of any city, in my opinion. The food, the coffee, they're always great in the gay part of town. Everyone's open-minded. No one cares what everyone else does. And as long as you don't cause harm to others, it's all good. It's pretty lovely. That and the latex bodysuits. Makes for interesting viewing. Speaking of covering up your body, not in latex, but in fabric, let me tell you about my guest today. This week, I'm joined by Imogen Bailey. She is an Australian actress and activist who belongs to a rather special club in that she's been on both Neighbours and Home and Away. The equivalent, I guess, would be that um, if you're on The Bold and the Beautiful and Days of Our Lives at one point in your career, but she's much, much much more than that. Imogen rocketed to fame when she leveraged her TV career and released a series of self-published calendars featuring her being really, really, really hot. Um, then there was a couple of years there when she was almost on every magazine cover um, ever, I think. However, at the same time, while she was doing all that, she was living with the family of her Lebanese-Australian boyfriend, practicing an Islamic way of life, and even wearing a hijab. Very, very interesting story. Imogen's a passionate campaigner for the rights of asylum seekers in Australia. She and I go into great detail about that. So if you feel a bit funny in the tummy about refugees, asylum seekers, immigration, I'd ask that you just, just hear her out. She raises some very interesting topics that might surprise you. You can follow Imogen on Twitter at Imogen, I-M-O-G-E-N underscore Bailey. B-A-I-L-E-Y. And I'd ask you this week, if you'd like, if you like the show, please, the biggest favor you can do for me is to reach into your pocket, open up the app or however you're listening to this show right now, and just click share and just tell someone about this show. That's the best thing you can do for me. So please, from Berlin to Bondi, enjoy an afternoon with Imogen Bailey. Just screening last night. I thought, mm -hmm. was it good? It was. It's really. It was like I guess when you have a test screening and mm -hmm. before you release, um, and it was sales clients too. It was um, agency sales mm -hmm. agency people who normally like folded arms and just yeah. like I go to these all the time. I yeah. did two today, you know. But people were so excited. Jumping off their chairs, 
and squirming in their seats. And it was, it was great. It was, I watched it with um, Stephen Tate, who you would know. Mm-hmm. Um, I haven't seen him for years. Yeah. yeah. But, yeah, he and I, he was in the front row with me and uh, I'm really excited about tonight. But you know what it's like on launch day. You're like you've done everything you can. Yeah. I've done all the promo. There's yep. shy of a few tweets tonight. There's nothing else I can do. Yeah. And my, you know, my part in it is done, set in stone. When it's not live, you can't do anything about it. Yeah. So you just have to sit and wait for the call at 8.25 in the morning. When they have the numbers, mm. they give you a call and say, here's where we were, here's where we went, this is what's happening. It's tricky. She'll be all right. Shall I shut yeah, that I or do you like the ambiance? I don't mind. I kind of like the ambiance of the Bondi afternoon. Hi, Imogen. Hi. How are you feeling? I'm a bit nervous. <laughs> Why are you nervous? <laughs> um... Because I've listened to some of your podcasts and, uh, you know, people are really honest with you. You're very disarming. So I'm excited and, and nervous all at once. If you don't want me to leave anything in, I can cut it out. Yeah, that's right. Not really. There's plenty of shows that I've aired that have had stuff cut out of them. People call me the next day and go, oh, that thing, can you pull that out? Yeah. Like, yeah, okay. No. Because I'm not interested I, yeah. in, in stitching anyone up. I don't want to oh, throw anybody out. You know what? I'm at an age now where it's like I, I appreciate <laughs> that I can be honest and appreciate that it's I'm in a really good place with everything. Yeah. You know, my career and my personal life and whatever. So it's it's good. But it does, <clears throat> it, it's like an excited nervous. Like I don't know what I'm going to say. <laughs> well, I was just trying to think when the last time we met. I think it was. Uh, my, I think it was Nickelodeon. Like at a Kids' like Choice were, Awards or something? Yeah, yeah. Oh, I was insane back yeah. then. Yeah. I was nuts. <laughs> I'm better now. <laughs> yeah, I don't really Good. remember. I think I um, remember you came on Channel V, I think. You had a single. Yeah, act, and you know what? I actually only remembered that because I remember meeting you at, um, at Nickelodeon and then I must, that Channel V must have been something that I just erased that I wasn't that happy with, so I got rid of it. Uh And then I remembered uh, the other day and I was like, oh, yeah, I think I remember like sitting on the steps being interviewed or something. Yeah. And they probably had me lip sync my, you know, single at the time. (laughs) It's okay. It's got to be done. Oh, look, it was fun. Yeah. I had a ball with that. It's it's part of the – so we're going to talk about a lot of things today. Okay. Um, we're here primarily to talk about the advocacy work you do for refugees mm-hmm. and asylum seekers in our country, Australia. Though I think it would uh, paint the picture for folks who listen around the world. I think it would be good to you know, paint the picture for folks outside of Australia about the kind of person that you are and how you came to be where you are. Mm-hmm. Um, I, like many other Australian men, I think my first memory of you was, who's that girl with a calendar? <laughs> wow, yeah, that's. Lovely. We were at yeah, we were at Channel V. I remember Andrew Mercado, who was the entertainment reporter at the time, said, "Oh, the girl from Home and Away's done a calendar. Check it out." <laughs> and I, my eyeballs just went, boing, just out on stalks, man. I was like twenty six, I think twenty five. Mm. It's two thousand. Well, I think the funny thing about that project is that I kind of had no 
contact with the outside world about modeling at that point. Like I was working with a photographer um, and I've only worked with, despite how many covers I've done, I've only worked with very few photographers because I am really shy. And uh, yeah, when I did that calendar project, that was kind of my idea with this photographer. We were like, let's do these, um, you know, and they're really fantasy. Like one is me, uh, several different versions of me on my own planet. <laughs> um, and that was what I mean by before I had any contact with the outside world in modelling. It's like before I had anybody else's opinion on it, before I knew what it would mean to kind of, because to me the stuff that I did then, that was like my, that was an expression, that was art, that was very different to doing magazine covers where, you know, then everybody tells you what they think. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, boy. But that was, uh, you'd already been on television at the time. You'd already been on Home and Away. Yeah, I'd, I'd been on, uh, yeah, I think, I'm trying to think yeah, about you had. It at the time, yeah. Yeah, yeah. you'd already done Home like and Away. Like it had like a really brief kind of. Yeah. Yeah. Where did you grow up? I was born in Canberra and I grew up down the south coast. Of? Which is um, south coast of like Marimbula, Pambula, Eden. Yeah, south coast so of what, Canberra always strikes me as just like a, like a big university campus. Yeah. Full of people who work government jobs. Yeah. And diplomats' children and, yeah. you know, yeah, it is. And it's, uh, you know, it's swings and roundabouts, like that place. <laughs> but in a way, it's a lot of people who are migrants. No one was, you are uncommon. You were born there when I, you know, mm. mates of mine lived there. Like, no one's born here. Everybody comes here. Yeah. I mean, it's kind of like LA where not very many people are from LA, like yeah. it's rare to meet someone that's from there. So, yeah, uh, you have people from all over the place. Um, it was a good place to grow up. Yeah. And what about when, when did you move? Because it's 770 metres above sea level. It's cold. Very cold. It's cold. Yeah. and yeah. So not only is it bureaucracy and red tape, it's also just piss freezing and chilly mornings. Porn and fireworks. Porn and fireworks, yeah, before. back in the day, yeah. back before yeah. the internet. That's that was the porn yeah. and fireworks capital. When we were on tour with my band, we'd go through there and pick up porn and fireworks <laughs> on VHS. Yeah, yeah. But then, you know, now this is a far gone time. It's a very different time. You click on your phone and there it is. You used to have to go all the way to Canberra, my friends. <laughs> Canberra, and then pretend you didn't have it when you crossed the border. Yeah, these old times. So, at what point did you go south coast and you have to well, I was like move from this some subarctic kind of tundra um, to so the beach. South coast I was there for uh, primary school and first part of high school and then I went back to Canberra. Uh -huh. Yeah. What, what was it like? I mean, that's a fairly idyllic part of the world, the south coast beautiful. of New South Wales. Yeah. It's like dolphins really and stuff or every day. Yeah. And seabirds and untouched beaches. Yeah, and, and everyone surfs and we lived – where we lived was um, – we lived on this beautiful farm which was up on a hill but the actual farmhouse was the old Pambula Hospital. Oh. So my parents had like the maternity ward and, yeah, it was as their bedroom. Yeah, it was, it was a really great place to grow up. I've been in those small towns though. They can be a bit, uh, a bit closed off at times. So did you notice anything like that when you were a kid? Uh, yeah, I mean, yeah, they are like that everybody knows everybody else's business for sure. Yeah. But you guys looked at, oh, you guys have come from Canberra. 
you're buying the old hospital you're going to live in it and what did people <laughs> was it tough coming go like you know it's always tough when you move schools uh no i don't remember it being yeah. so and we can't we were there you know we lived on the farm for not very long and then we moved into the main um town pambula and there was uh so that's the main street there's like um a top pub a bottom pub and a milk bar in the middle <laughs> and we uh bought the house that was right next to the church and i worked in the milk bar at 12 12 years old i was you know working in the milk bar for three dollars fifty an hour top pub bottom pub and a milk bar and a milk bar yeah what was the difference between the top pub and the bottom pub not much really not much no. so because in some of those country towns like one of the pubs that's the black pub yeah and the other pub's the white pub uh, certainly in queensland yeah okay so i guess the bottom pub was probably an older crowd yeah um i know that at 13 i was sneaking into the top pub so. <laughs> <laughs> when did you i mean you've, you've you're a very beautiful woman sitting before me but when you were a kid, when did you realise I look different from other girls? Um, I don't think I don't think I ever thought that I looked different, but I think that I realised very young that uh, like older guys would pay me a lot of attention, mm -hmm. and I think not until in my thirties, as a grown woman, and I've kind of been able to work all that stuff out, is that. Uh, you know, I had big boobs and I was very curvy and, and you know, uh, and and men are attracted to vessels that look like they're good for baby making. <laughs> like that's, you know, like that that's that's what's underneath all that. And I think that um, so I got a lot of attention from from older guys when I was younger. Yeah. Is that, is that weird? Like the Britney Spears song, not a girl but not yet a woman was it was it a bit like i don't quite know why these men are talking to me different from the boys at high school i like it but i don't like it it's dangerous it's not dangerous uh yeah i think it did you know now that i've been able to dissect it in my older age as we do um now i kind of realized that that meant that by 16 i was in the arms of you know my first relationship and i went particularly for somebody that i chose because I felt I would be safe with them. So oh. it, it did kind of make my relationships with men weird from a young age because I was very aware, uh, you know, I was very aware of my sexuality and how men were attracted to that. 16? Was he older? Yes. What was, yeah. that, what was that like? Um, we were together for eight years. Wow. So, uh, yeah, it was it was interesting it's interesting now looking back on it yeah yeah he was like 10 years older than me bad boy right yeah hey mom dad here's my boyfriend how'd that work out ah uh, yeah well my parents weren't that happy with my first choice and uh you know he was also he was lebanese muslim and very different family life to me very different background um and you know that that's a whole another conversation, but um. or or is it? I mean, <laughs> you know that was your. I mean, I didn't know anybody who was Islamic growing up in Brisbane. Yeah, at all. Yeah, um, uh, it's only crikey, just through how I live and where I live. It's only kind of now that I have friends who have who are Islamic, mm. and I'm forty, and they are all from overseas. So yeah. it 
be uncommon to be having exposure to that culture. Yeah, and I think, you know, coming from the South Coast and by this point, when I was 14, I... Um, There's no mosque between the milk bar and no, the top pub, no. is there? No, just so check it. So at 13, I went back to Canberra. At, at 14, I was out of home. And then by 16, I'm living in Sydney um, with some... I was, I was actually, I was living with an Israeli girl and her husband who... And I'd met her doing like a beautician's course. Uh-huh. And... Uh, then brought home to her my Arab boyfriend. <laughs> and she was like, you're crazy, what are you doing? So, yeah, that was uh, that's funny to look back on now. Wow, that would have been between the first and second intifada too. Yeah. Yeah, wow. Heavy times. Yeah. Heavy times at the Bailey house. So then how, like, so you're living a bit of a double life then. I mean, were you living a double life at all? Not until later on. Um, I wasn't modelling or any, like when I was 16, I wasn't wasn't modelling. Were you still at school or just going like, I'm out of here? I did, I was, did like part of year 10. (laughs) I took a lot of days off. Um, Was that, why did school not do it for you? I was bored. It's just, I would get bored. Um. And I think because I had come from this small country town, getting lots of attention from from older guys, you know, that meant that I also hung out with older girls as well. Mm-hmm. So um, I think because of that, being in high school, then yeah, I mean, I, I, I was bored. Yeah, I was ready to be out in the world. So I thought. <laughs> <laughs> and what was it like out in the world? Uh, well, you know, that's how I, and then I think that's how I ended up. I met Ahmed and uh, Ahmed became my world for, for eight years. You're right. Yeah. It, it was it pretty much as far away as you can get. Yeah. From Canberra and small sea change town. Yeah. And I think now, um, you know, now that I'm older and I've been able to look at it, I think that there was some kind of protection in that in you know the family situation you know I had moved out of home very young and so for me it was really nice to have this big family atmosphere and and I would do stuff with his mom you know we would bring in the washing and we would cook together and I would hang out with his sisters and you know in in the Muslim um, culture it is very much like men and women have you know they have times when they come together but they have a lot of time when they do stuff on their own and you know, I really kind of found this beautiful place and the sisterhood there and this, you know, really um, rich family, um, family life that I hadn't had and loved that. So I, you know, I look back on that time very fondly because of, you know, that experience. I had a, honestly, I had a similar experience when I, when I first started, you know, dating my, my ex-wife is Israeli and, the, the craziest thing about the Middle East is that everything there is the three monotheistic religions. They're just honestly so close yes. as far as traditions yeah, go. Yeah. They just have different names for things. Like yeah. People fast, people, the holidays often can see, you know, around the same time. It's, it's, and there's very much, you know, tradition around eating and tradition around days of the week and tradition around observing days of rest and, and things like that. And I found just such comfort in the uh, ritualization of family bonding. Yeah. That was like, oh, right, well, of course everyone's, you know, of course it's like this when you've got this instant community around you. And I just felt so, 
you know, because, yeah, oh, you know, we grew up, my parents came to Australia from another country and so we didn't really, and our family, the family that we did have were all down in Adelaide. So we we're kind of isolated in many ways up in Brisbane. So to be around, oh, we're just having Friday night dinner and then just going to be 25 people there. <laughs> just mm. happens every Friday. Yeah. This is what we do. Yeah. It's pretty rad. Yeah, it's awesome, and just being and being involved in cooking food for that many people, and uh, you know, sitting down and eating is like an experience. And the care that you know, we we live in Australia. It's very much about your nuclear family, and sometimes not even that. And then, you know, in that situation, I was exposed to, you know, we of course we take care of our cousin and our cousin and our cousin, and and uh-huh. and it's. Like community is good. Yeah. And I think that that's actually, you know, from uh, that culture, it, it is actually something that Australians could take on as a good contribution. It sounds like the tiny blonde haired white girl from the country was fairly well accepted. Oh, look, in the beginning, no. I, I, of course, like my, you know, my, my partner was the oldest boy and uh, it was, uh, I, I I don't know. I guess for her, yeah, it was probably her worst nightmare um, to bring home a blonde Australian girl. But also, I think she, you know, they had they had fled war and they had come to Australia and they had built this life and and she was very much looking forward to this picture of what she always thought would happen for her son, which was to marry a uh, you know a, a Lebanese Muslim girl and, and have lots of children that would be her grandchildren. I don't hold that against her. That's a beautiful dream to have. Um, and in the beginning she was opposed to me, but in the end when we broke up she would call me and say, please come back to oh. my son. <laughs> you know, so uh, and, and he and I are, are still friends now and speak on occasion, I always ask him how his mum is. You know, she became a second mother to me. Yeah, right. Yeah. Yeah. And so was it during that time that the the acting thing sort of coming your way? Uh, well, when I did Home and Away, I'd never done an acting course or anything. I just kind of, uh, I was doing... I was doing promo work and I was doing, you know, mucking around with um, having my photo taken and whatever. And and then um, I, yeah, during that relationship towards the end, <laughs> um, this is a little bit confessional, but um, so towards the end and, and him and I have made peace about it now so it's okay, I can talk about it, but um, he was unfaithful to me throughout that whole relationship and I was kind of like, you know, he's a good girl at home and whatever. And so the modelling really kind of started out to get back at him for that. Uh-huh. And it was like, you know, it was the the worst possible thing that um, I could have done was to, you know, pose in a bikini for him. And, and we've talked a lot about it now um, and I'm very grateful for the path that I've had and, you know, I wouldn't be who I am today if I hadn't, have, you know, gone down that path. But in in comparison to other people's stories, it's it was... I mean, look, it's a bit of a negative way to get started in that industry, which was, you know, up yours uh, boyfriend and probably up yours dad a little bit as well, <laughs> you know. Uh, Is that why you've got that look in your eye in those photos? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. 
<laughs> yeah. And it was, I didn't realize until probably until my late 20s, I didn't realize that I had all this anger from when I was younger from being afraid of, of men, of having all this attention, uh, you know, living in a country town with big boobs and, and uh, you know, getting all that attention and, and not knowing, not being mature enough or, or just not knowing how to deflect it or how to, to, you know, to deal with it. And then the same, I guess, because I had was in a relationship with this person that I really believed at 16, like I really believed this is the man I'm going to marry, this is the man I'm going to have children with and he would go out and I would be at home with his mum and his family and it's like so the opposite to how uh, an Australian girl of that age would, would, you know, how their life normally would be. They'd like, you know, have boyfriends and whatever and I was like, no, I'm here with this guy at 16 and and I'm going to marry him and probably have like six or eight children to him. <laughs> um, yeah, which is, it, I mean, it's very different to the girl on, on magazine covers. Yeah. Totally different. And so the girl on the magazine cover would go home and start chopping up things in the kitchen. Yeah. Yeah. And folding, washing with his mum and one of his sisters started teaching me Arabic and, yeah, it was yeah. Did you start to explore the the, the faith side of yeah, life I did. there? I yeah, was, I was reading the Quran and I was um, I was very curious about it. And I think what I was drawn to was, uh, especially was, the, despite what what you know people think that women are treated very well. I mean, I think it's a matriarchal society. I, I you know I. I feel differently about it to a lot of people and I get in debates with people about it. Um, but, you know, I was I was treated very well and I had a, the sisterhood and it, it doesn't, the thing about Muslim women is it, it has nothing to do with what you look like. It's who you are on the inside. Um, and I've worn a hijab before and, and I actually really, for that experience, I think, I think it's an experience that is... Um, I don't know. It's 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 enriching and it's worth exploring. What, so, what was it like? That energy you spoke of—the energy you didn't know what to do with—what was it like when you wore the hijab and you're out and about and it's, suddenly? The- oh, it's totally different. And I wouldn't say like I was. I mean, I had experimented with wearing it a couple of times only at that point, and not until I went and did go back. Um, you know, then did I I wear it for mm-hmm. for a couple of weeks, um, but. Yeah, I mean, you, you get treated very differently. And, of course, I think, you know, I play my part in that as well. Like we all use our sexuality as currency and what we look like as currency, whether we like it or not, it's it's there. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think that as much as people were different to me, I was probably different to them as well. Right. But, yeah, it's you're, you're taken for who the person is inside, not what's going on on the outside. And that I liked a lot. Betrayal is the worst, and to yeah. to find out that you were you were cheated on must have been very very tough. And yeah, to be not only have to leave that relationship, but also leave the relationship with that extended family. You it must have been quite lonely. Where did you go after that? I uh, well, I was still living in Sydney. And um, I was, live, I, by then I'm kind of. Because like, you, you didn't tell by the sounds of things. It sounds like you didn't really have a social circle outside of this community. Not much. Community. 
Not much. Yeah. Um, it's a lonely place to be. Afterwards, yeah, it was. And it was, uh, yeah, I'm, I mean, I remember I got to a point where I, I just, I had found out about somebody else and I was like, this is it. Like I have to make this choice now. This is, I'm too smart and have been too stupid for too long to not say enough. Um, and he has apologised to me, you know, from a very deep place. It sounds like the two of you. Yeah, definitely. And he's now married and has three beautiful children. And I'm grateful the two of you have done that because that's that's a, that's a lot of energy to carry through your life. Yeah. That yeah. kind of burden that it was never resolved. Yeah. Yeah, that's you, you're, you're lucky to have that. Yeah, it's good. Because some people can, they define every relationship that comes yeah. after with that baggage. Yeah, but it took years. Like it took until his uh, his wife was literally about to give birth to his child and he called me out of the blue and said, you know what, you, you're such a great person and you deserve a, a great life and I need to say this to you and I'm so sorry and, we, you wow. know, we kind of went through the whole thing. And it wasn't until that point in that conversation that did I realise how much I had been carrying all of that and how much my, uh, even with my, you know, my love-hate relationship with um, who Imogen on the magazines, you know, was and is, until we had that conversation. Like I really made peace with so many things through that. So it was, I'm glad that happened, yeah. After the the calendar we spoke of, things kind of did explode for you a bit. Yeah, uh, was it? It was looked pretty quick that things started to really. Yeah, it was. Yeah. It was really quick. I mean, and I, you know, I had studied marketing, so I was in this place of there was one part of me going, "This is not a good idea. This is not who I am. This is not who I want to be." And there was this other part of me going, "I'm so." hurt and betrayed right now and what is the best revenge? The best revenge is success. And I knew how to connect all the dots. I knew how to brand myself. I knew, um, you know, nobody, I guess, except the only other person that was back then that was doing that kind of branding was um, Annalise uh, Brackenzak. So we had, I hope I've said her name right, I don't think I have. It's Bracken, Bracken Seek. It's much more fancy than how I've said it. Well, she sat right there and told me how to say it. Oh, really? Yeah, she lives up the street. Sorry, Annalise. Um, But, yeah, she was kind of the only one, uh, only other model in my sphere at that time where, you know, we were Mm self-marketing. And, uh, yeah, and so I sort of, I I won, like, Ralph's Sexiest Model of the Year and then it just. It's a magazine in Australia that doesn't exist anymore. It's quite the the lad's mag. Maxim. Yeah, it's like not quite. Playboy, there's no nipples, yeah, no. but there's, there's cars and photos of guys yeah. with, with horrible injuries and yeah, and, and interviews that they just make up, yeah, <laughs> <laughs> which V8 supercar would win in a race across the Harbour Bridge, that kind of thing, yeah, yeah, yeah. And so, you were voted sexiest woman on earth by Ralph, something like that. sexiest model of the year, or something mm-hmm. like that. And it just from there, it was like one magazine after the other. And I remember there was a few times where. Uh, there was like Ralph and FHM and I would be consecutively like on one and then on the other. On the cover? Yeah, and selling this huge amount of magazines and they were saying nobody's ever sold this much before and I'm like this is crazy. Right. Um, 
That was a time when there was still money in print. Were you getting compensated yeah. for those oh, shoots? Oh, yeah. I made okay. a lot of money and I blew it all. Oh, <laughs> I made a lot of money and blew it all just on, <laughs> on stupid shit. Yeah. Just yeah. dumb stuff. Dumb stuff that was totally driven by ego. Like shit like um, I don't fly in the back of the plane. I fly in the front of the plane. Just <laughs> like just blow a grand on a 45-minute flight to Melbourne because my ego was upset that I was only booked on economy. Just ridiculous shit yeah. like that. Just Yeah, I blew, you know, money on a few business class flights to London. Yeah. Just a bit further down the track, but yeah. Oh, yeah. Mate, I, me and Qantas. <laughs> <laughs> we are, we are, mate. But that's, that's, where, that's where it goes, man. Particularly when I was, you know, back when I was still drinking, I was just like, shit, was a good idea. I'm totally going to do that. Just swipe it on a credit card and go. And interestingly, like a lot of my friends that are in the entertainment industry have a similar story. Mm -hmm. And I think that there's an emptiness and an unhappiness that comes with, like there's some awesome stuff about it. But there's also, I think it creates holes in people when they try to fill that with spending the money. Mm. Um, And I definitely did do that. Right. Yeah. Yeah. So... The, 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 if the, I earned that kind of money now, it would not happen again. Just oh, saying that universe. Oh man! <laughs> so, so, so by the by the grace of God and the power of the universe and whatever else holds true, I came out of unemployment to be on The Bachelor. Mm. So I, no one gets a second shot at the title. It yeah. came out of nowhere, and I got to thank. Great. I've got to thank and and network executive Stephen Tate. I tell him all the time. He's like, "You gave me a career twice. Yeah, <laughs> you gave me Idol and you gave me this. And this time around, I'm like." Um, I'm, you know, shopping in the budget aisle. <laughs> I'm just going to be a little more careful. Flying in the back of yeah. the plane. Yeah. Oh, oh, yeah. Sorry, I'm making noise over here. Um, so I, it sounds like things started to take you further afield than Sydney. Like you were, you started to travel overseas a bit at this point? Yeah. So then I, I uh, did a couple of reality shows and I got asked to do this record um, in London. That's right. You did Celebrity Big Brother. Yeah. You were in the house with Kyle Sanderland. Yes. Yeah. I was. What I was, was that like? Uh, well, no, you know, nobody kind of really knew. I mean, some people did, but nobody kind of really knew who he was then. And uh, dare I say this, I think he was a much nicer person then. He's a nice guy. He is a nice guy. And one thing I will say about him is he is somebody who, he said, even back then, he was like, I'm going to have a house in Hollywood. I'm going to do this. I'm going to do that. It's going to look exactly like this. And I look at what he's done now and it is exactly what he had painted. And one thing about his personality, you know, from what I know of him from back then was he doesn't take no for an answer yeah. and he doesn't let anybody say, no, you can't. Yeah. Which, Absolutely. you know, is great. And he's, he doesn't waste money. Remember the, the funniest line he ever told me, we were in Cairns, we were shooting Idol and um, we were talking about, I don't know, taking a flight here or having a holiday. He goes, no, nah, mate, I don't spend money. I buy things that make money. <laughs> yeah, that sounds That's nice. I like that, Kyle. Good, uh, good action, brother. Was, yeah. So I remember, I do remember one thing about being in that. I, I went to that big brother house. Um, up on, on Dreamworld on the Gold Coast, I think the third year of Idol, the second year of Idol. And um, it was while housemates were in there. Mm-hmm. And um, I remember the person that was taking us around said, I, it was, I can't remember his name, Zoltan or something like that. He had a name that started with a Z, Zaylin mm-hmm. or something like this. 
And they said, you can't look at them too long through the mirror because they know you're there. <laughs> they can't see you, but they'll but turn, they they'll turn yeah. around and look. Yeah, yeah. And Good. they said, especially him, so don't look. And I'm like, bullshit. Sure enough, I looked. Yeah. And within five seconds he turned around and made direct eye contact with me. Yeah. Now he's looking into a mirror. Yeah. But he turned around and he saw it. Did you feel? Yeah, you do. You do. And it's like because who else was in there? Kimberly Cooper. Dylan was in there. Yeah. Anthony Mundine. Awesome. And Sarah Marie. And Sarah Marie and I became, uh, you know, best friends. She's still one of my best friends. We've lived together. She's like she's an awesome being. And, uh, yeah, it was a. It was such a surreal experience. And it was soon after that when we met. Yeah. When you had a, you know, as every actress who is a cover model, you, it's it's important that you put the pop single out. You got to do it. You got to do it. You got to do <laughs> well, it. You know, I, I don't. It's the way nature yeah, intends. Yeah. Like I was asked to do that and I went, oh, I don't know, maybe, okay. And it was a lot of fun. And I worked with another group called Superfly, but Michael Woods, who I worked with then, um, he has become huge. He's earning millions now. He's, and he's re, I mean, he's super talented. Um, but yeah, I mean, I had no idea what I was doing. I had no idea. And when we uh, released the single in the UK, I went over to the UK for that and was getting like front pages of newspapers saying next Kylie and I was offered a contract by London Records and they were looking after Danny at the time. (laughs) And it's hilarious to look back on now but through my career, my career kind of has these peaks and troughs and it's usually based on how confident I am at the time. And at the time I was so overwhelmed by the attention and so overwhelmed with what was happening with that. You know, I performed in Japan and it was, and I'm like, I'm not a singer. I love writing lyrics, but I'm not a singer. Um, but I, I, I turned that deal down and wow. came back and everyone was like, are you, London Records have offered you a contract, the guy who's looking after Danny and you've just said no. But I just didn't feel like I had, you know, I, what, I had what it would take to be a huge pop star. There's right. a lot of work and you've got to have, um, excuse my French, but a shit ton of confidence. <laughs> and I just can't, like I, I do and then I don't depending on, but I'm, I've made peace with that. Like I'm an introvert, extrovert. When I come out and I want to express myself, I have an awesome time in my job. And then when I want to go away and completely shut off from it, I have an awesome time with myself. Right. Yeah. But that does not make for a pop star. Yeah. It's funny. I, you know, I look at it now and I've, I've said no to some big gigs out of fear. Yeah. Out of, I was afraid of how big it was. Yeah. I was afraid of what people might think. Not, you know, yeah, uh, yeah. And that's, I look at it now, I'm like, how did I say no to that? I would have worked for 15 straight years if I'd done that. Oh, yeah. And I would have never worried about cash at all. Yeah. But at the time I was, I was just afraid. And I. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, I was. I'm talking shows that are still on here now. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, I've done it quite a few times. And I think I was already being accepted as that. Like I was getting the publicity and I was Mm. doing all. But it's, it's, you've got to have this passion and the love for the game as well. And I just didn't, I wanted to express myself I, and I 
when I did my calendars in the beginning, it was always about like, I want to express myself. Mm. I want to express myself about my sexuality, about being a woman, about, you know, lots of different things. But being in magazines and then being a pop star and, and those kind of things, they didn't match with that. And so I know now that's why I was in, unhappy in those mm-hmm. places. And now I only kind of go to places where I get to express myself and I'm happy and that's a different uh, path to what a lot of my friends have taken. But so when you're, when you, you know? when you're, you know, you're in the UK, you're on the cover of the newspaper saying the next Kylie. Yeah. And you you're, you don't want to do it. What are the phone calls home back to mum like? I have, my mum is amazing. My mum's is so cruisy and she's like, whatever makes you happy. Um, you know, we've spoken more about it now and I think there have definitely been points when my mum's thought you, you're like, you are crazy. But she knows me. She knows that when I make up my mind about something, that's like I've made up my mind. Mm-hmm. Um, and I'm very, to work with me, like I'm very loyal and very committed. I give my 100%. And if I know I can't give my 100%, I have to say no. So, yeah, so there was definitely friends who said, what are you doing? Uh, and we laugh about it now. <laughs> <laughs> So I guess then when Neighbours came along, mm-hmm. which is a, I mean, you're, I can't think of, there's got to be only a handful of actors that have done both Neighbours and Home and Away. Yeah, I mean, uh, is it a special club? for me you, was like a really very small Yeah, but still, you did both. Thing. Yeah, Come, yeah. It's pretty awesome. Yeah, so neighbor, look, Neighbours was awesome. They're two, they're two, two of the, the cornerstones of Australian yeah. television pop culture and you're on both of them. Yeah. Um, what was it like then to be in... When you're shooting, you did a lot of episodes. You did over a hundred. Yeah. What was it like to be in that week in, week out, five days a week? You know, kind of routine uh, of rather than you know chasing work and being on this roller coaster that you were. Oh, I really thrived in that. I mean, the the people that work on that show is an amazing crew, uh, amazing cast, and everyone's so committed. It's like, I mean, it's definitely like being in a in a bubble environment, but. I had not really done any acting classes and I got some awesome directors, um, Jet, who I didn't get to listen to her. her oh, yeah, Jet Wilkinson's yeah. on this show. Yeah, she's amazing. It's her birthday soon. Very oh, soon. is it? Yeah. Her story is mind-blowing. Yeah, I do want to go back and listen to her. Especially, you know, when we're talking about immigration, you know, that's yeah. amazing tale to tell. Yeah. So these directors, how do they help you? They, you know. Well, we had a changeover of um, uh, executive producers while I was there. So Erin McNaught and I were hired at the same time. Um, and, you know, one of the difficulties about that was that people sort of said, oh, they've put two models on the show. Um, and, you know, we were both there for, for different reasons but we are both committed to learning. And I got in there and started working with, the acting coaches and I was like, I, I, I love this. Like this is awesome. And, and Ryan Maloney took me under his wing. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. 
Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. And, um, and I was given this kind of it started out as the the vixen role and uh and then we had a changeover of of EPs and Susan Bauer came in and Susan Bauer is a little bit famous she's in that book who killed um channel 9 they have the, <laughs> and she's hardcore like she's amazing at her job but she's known for coming in and making a lot of changes and saving a lot of money and doing and that's you know she's expert in that and uh I was contracted for three years and she came in, I think it was like six weeks after I'd been there or maybe a couple of months and she sat me down and she said, we're, we're going to, um, at six months, we're gonna, you're not going to continue. And I was really upset. I was like, well, what do you mean? And she kind of didn't go into detail and then, you know, on those shows there's always a little bit of politics and I heard, you know, kind of, rumours that she had said she didn't want models on the show. And that was the best thing that I could have ever had whispered in my ear because that meant that I was like, okay, I'm going to have to prove you wrong now. (laughs) They talk about short man syndrome. I've got a little bit of petite woman syndrome (laughs) in that you tell me I can't do something and I have to do it. And um, my storyline went into um, Nicola West, who I played, was completely crazy and, you know, some really tricky stuff even for an experienced actor and I just went for it. Um, so much so that at the end um, Susan took me to lunch and she said, you know, I respect you for what you did and um, it was amazing. Congratulations. I can't wait to see what you do next. And that was really sweet that that happened. Well, she still let you go. Yeah, they still, well, they had already written me out. Oh, right. So it already has to happen. Yeah. But it was great to have, like, that was an amazing learning curve. And then I also had, you know, stuff. I had stuff written in magazines where, you know, as an actor, you don't like to look at that stuff. But the stuff from the beginning is sometimes is cool to look at that. And I had stuff where they were saying, you know, who would have thought a model or a, a reality TV person would have put in such a layered um, mm-hmm. performance. And it's like, it's neighbors. But, you know, it was. It was a taste for something that I fell in love with. Yeah. And yeah. where did that take you? Um, so from there I went to London to promote Neighbours and did a little bit of work there. And then I came back to Sydney and started working with this amazing acting coach, this little old lady, Annie Swan, in her house who just who taught me everything about music about colour, about all this stuff that I, as somebody who hadn't been to acting school, I didn't know any of this. Um, And she gave me life education. And then I went, she said, okay, you're going to go to New York and you're going to work with Larry Moss because he's amazing. I went, okay. And I'd only ever been overseas for work before. I'd never been, you know, for anything but 
So I went to New York and I started working with Larry Moss, who teaches like Leonardo DiCaprio and, oh, yeah. you know, um, yeah, he's a big deal and he's amazing. And uh, I'm guessing you don't just call up Larry. You've got to get in there. No, you've got to get in there, you know. <laughs> and I've worked with him now for four years and he's incredible. And uh, he's known for giving people material that they need to work on things within themselves. And he gave me this David Ray play um, in the Boom Boom Room, which is um, about two, uh, two strip dancers. And he made me do this monologue, which was about, um, you know, men and sexuality and just, uh, you know, cracked me open. And it was, it was like everything about the, all the anger that I had about the magazines kind of that and being, I felt very shamed in that situation with Neighbours whenever anybody would say anything that was to do with the modelling, I always felt very shamed. So, yeah, that was... And how do you feel about feel about it now? Now I feel, you know, I'm I'm working with a writing teacher on on and and I've got to this place where I'm like I wanted to express myself, and I'm really grateful for that experience. I'm really enjoying writing about it, and I don't know where that ends or what that turns into, but um, yeah. So. Another TV thing that you did here in Australia, which is a bit of a leap from The Vixen on Neighbours, is a, a landmark documentary series that we had here. Mm. There was two seasons of it. You were on the second season. It's a show called Go Back to Where You Came From, which yeah. is um, produced by a production company I've done a lot of work with, guys called Cordell Jigsaw. Yeah. I think they're called Cordell Jigsaw Zapruder now. Yes. Or Zapruder Cordell Jigsaw. Michael Cordell. Um, where they take... Uh, six Australians, usually fairly balanced, three very mm -hmm. against immigration and three very pro-immigration and retrace the steps of uh, refugees seeking asylum in Australia. Yeah. Uh, the first series was just ordinary, everyday Australians. I had a chance to meet uh, some of those people from the first season. They came in on Today FM when I was filling in for yeah, the right. Um I met the uh, older lady and the youngest, mm -hmm. the youngest girl who came on the came on the show with me to later live next door to Woodside mm -hmm. in, uh, in Adelaide, which is amazing because in the first episode, it's basically it's the, it was the, uh, it's the facility where people who come to Australia seeking asylum in right. South Australia, yeah. they, they stay there while they're being processed and, and they wait and it's in the hills of Adelaide and, um, and she's basically her fence line is with these and they're filming her on her fence line with the buildings of the facility behind her and she's yeah, I remember saying it. what she yeah. thinks. And I'm looking at that and I ask my mum, when you first came to Australia, where were you put? She goes, oh, there. Yeah. It's exactly the same yeah. place, the same place that my mum went to as a refugee in Australia and it was just, yeah. So anyway, that series really hit home for me. Um, but you were on the second season. How did, they, how did they approach you? Why did you want to do it? Well, I was, in, I was living in L.A., and um, I'd just gone through a <laughs> another breakup. I just okay, gone, we all have. I'd, come on. I'd gone through a really shitty breakup. Um, like I will never date another actor again. <laughs> no, I shouldn't say that. But uh, you know, two actors out of work, 
it it just did not work. It was a, a disaster. Someone's someone's got to have some security. Yeah. Someone, someone's yeah. got to have either financial or In emotional LA, security. It was not a good idea. Yeah, it's difficult, man. Um, and I. I'm going to Ivana Chovic's. for oh, fuck you. <laughs> we can only afford for one of us. To she go. was Steiner. She yeah. was Stanislavski, and I was Meisner. We could never work yeah, out. Yeah, no, no, not good. Yeah. Um, but I. Like very quickly how I got to go back was I met my then, uh, my partner then had this French teacher. His French teacher was a Buddhist who introduced both of us to Buddhism. Um, And so after that breakup, which was like emotionally, it was the worst breakup I'd been through. And I'm sure that that has something to do with being in LA at the time and away from home. But, uh, yeah, it's a lonely city to get yeah, to break and I'm unemployed. I've done it. It's shit. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I'm unemployed. I'm like, yeah, I've done it. I've yeah. been, you know, I've been over there uh, training and, and thinking at some point I'm either going to book a job here or I'm going to go back to Australia. I didn't have any money to come home. My, uh, my, one of my dogs was dying and I was like, I have to get, ho- I have to get home. And I would go every day and chant for like, three hours the most I ever chanted was like five hours and I was like just you know something has got to give um I and we had um a meeting of all the artists that are Buddhists and and we write down you know what we want to do with our careers and I wrote down that I wanted this job that would look like this and it was about being in touch with what was going out on in the world that I really needed to know about that I really needed to experience um, and, you know, you, you write it down on a card and then you give it to somebody else and then they will chant for you. And a couple of months later I got a call about Go Back and I hadn't seen the first series because I was in L.A. at the time and they said to me, um, you know, it's about refugees and this, and I went, I'm in. <laughs> I, don't, I didn't know if I was getting paid, I didn't know anything. I was like, I'm in. Am I coming back to Australia first? Great, because I've got 20 bucks. <laughs> so I got on a plane with 20 bucks and I got to come to this job that I um, that was looked exactly like what I had chanted for. Two days before I left LA, I went to this um, poetry reading and met the girl who I'd given my card to and she was like, I have been chanting so hard for you. And I went, you're not going to believe this. I just got a call about this job. And so we were both, you know, super encouraged by that. And so you get back to Australia mm-hmm. and obviously you know what the show is by now. Yeah. They sent me the first series and uh, I watched it with my mum and I was like, oh, my goodness, what have I got myself into? I don't know about this. I was scared. It, this is intense. Yeah. And I think the thing that... What strikes me the most about that series is it it, it doesn't glorify one side or the other. It just basically no. says this is the experience of these people. Yeah. Not anything else. This is a human journey of these human yeah. beings. Let's go and talk to them. Let's go live with them. Um, it's a show starts with the people who are, for the folks who haven't seen it, uh, it starts with the people who are on the show. They go and uh, live in people have already come to Australia to go and live in their houses with them. Mm-hmm. And then the group splits in two and you went to Africa, correct? 
Yeah. yeah. So I end up in Mogadishu, which at the time is the most dangerous city in the world. The one place where I said jokingly to my mum, they won't send us to Mogadishu. <laughs> and they did. <laughs> yeah. That was crazy. Yeah. Yeah. I never, ever want to be that close to men with guns ever again. It was, yeah, it was, it was a big experience. Not just men with guns, just because in our experience, in our culture, in Australia, men with guns are people who are trained, people who are trusted by society to have a certain boundary of behaviour. The issue is lawless. Yeah. It's lawless. We had a guy from the CIA and his wife, or the, the both former CIA, and they were taking care of us. And his wife wouldn't actually didn't even come to the airport to meet us because it's not safe for women there that are not, especially women that are not Somali. So there's me. I'm like five foot three. I, I'm wearing a full hijab, and it's not just the short one. It's the one that goes all the way down um, to your knees, and you've got to wear stuff underneath in case the wind blows and whatever and hair nets and everything so not one hair comes out. Um, but, yeah, and the, the experience is we get off off the plane and um, there's people with guns everywhere. And this guy from the CIA, you know, meets us and says, okay, so we're going to take you to the car. We get in the car and it's like Kevlar. That I think that's what it's called. Kevlar. So, yeah. <laughs> Bulletproof armor. Yeah, but it's serious. And there's like two cars with more men with guns. Um, and yeah, it was, and they kind of all covered me and then got me into the middle. And, and when we went back, we went, so then we go back to his uh, kind of house and we have this debriefing and, and, you know, get told what to do in an emergency. And after that's all finished, he talks to me on the side and he says, you know, please don't take offense to this, but. When I found out that they were bringing you and I Googled you, I thought it was not a good idea. This is a very dangerous place for you. Um, And obviously, you know, that's about the modelling, which would be incredibly offensive to to people there. Mm -hmm. Uh, So that, you know, created a whole, that was a whole other level. Did you sleep at all? Not much. No, I mean, we were very well taken care of, but... I have never been so frightened. Yeah, it was. Um, I, I never want to go back there. It's the kind of the kind of presence that you just don't experience. That heightened sense of every person in the room, every eye in the room, every yeah, rustle of every leaf. Yeah, and I think that it's something that for me, when it comes to refugees and asylum seekers. I don't think Australians can understand what being in that kind of fear is like. We don't. We haven't had war here. We don't. Mm. We just don't know. Um, the only thing we can relate it to is, you know, in war, in sorry, in a flood or in fire when we lose everything. Mm-hmm. And Australians will, you know, we have that camaraderie about us where we will, when people are in need in those situations, we get it. Mm. Um, And I guess what I'm leading to is that I think the big problem here with asylum seekers and refugees is that they are painted as criminals. Yeah. And that's a big part of why people say no. It's funny you mentioned the flood or the fire after the 2011 Brisbane floods when there were just the piles of refuse on the Mm. side of the roads from people cleaning their houses out. My mum was getting just 
full flashbacks, full World War II flashbacks. Yeah. It was just because, you know, she, for the first 10 years of her life, she lived in a refugee camp. Yeah. It was very, very tough for her. Still, you know, 60 years later, mm. and she was getting that experience. And, you know, we're talking about this. And I grew up with this woman who was the, this is, that was her early childhood. Yeah. Was living in these, you know, in, I mean, it wasn't the kind of thing you saw in Mogadishu, that's for sure. Mm. It was, you know, Adelaide, but still there was, they lived five to a room. And, yep. you know, and certainly when she was in, in Germany and Lithuania before that coming down through Austria and stuff like that, it's just like really traumatic stuff for a mm. kid. And then, then they have to live the rest of their life with that programming, yeah. that programming of this is how you behave, um, which is wild. And then, like you can imagine like my grandfather went, that's it. I mean, my grandfather came on a boat. Yeah. He, he got on a boat. He's like, we're getting on a boat. Yeah. They got on the first boat. They tried to get on the first boat. The first boat was going to the North America, to New York. And then my aunt had a cough and they thought it was tuberculosis. So I said, right. you can't come on. Next boat was going to Australia. He's like, get the hell out of here. Let's go. Don't even know where it is. Mm. Let's go. They got to Perth. Grandpa went, no, nah, not getting off here. They got to Adelaide by that point. They'd been at sea for mm, three months. Yeah, crazy. And they're like, we're getting off. And there was a pair of train tracks going into the sand dunes in Adelaide. He got off and they just, he wept apparently. He was like, what have I done? I brought my family here. Mm. And at the time, like my mum only spoke German. Yeah. Because that's that's where they've been living for yeah. the last seven years. And so she turns up to Australia, a country that's just fought a war against the Germans, only speaking German, <laughs> you know, heavy, man. Like, yeah, and I don't think we take that into account. That yeah. it's people people that are coming here in those kind of situ- situations, they love their country just as much as we love ours. And would they choose to leave? Like that's for me is always something that's interesting is, you know, you talk to asylum seekers or refugees and the love that they have for their country and then they have that for Australia as well. But it's like we don't, we just don't even, uh, you know, we don't explore their stories enough. You talked about. The, the 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 story that people are criminal. I remember the day, mm. August twenty fifth, two thousand. I became an Australian citizen. So I'm a, I'm, oh wow! Yeah, I'm an immigrant, so and I'm white, so no one minds. Um, I became an Australian citizen. I went to work that day, and I remember my floor manager saying to me, uh, uh, "He said, oh, who else was in the room?'" I said, "Oh, it was, you know, it was me and some Malaysians and some Indonesians and some Filipinos." Uh, any other white guys? No. He goes, yeah. They'll be going straight to Centrelink the moment they get that certificate that you just got. I'm like, hang on a second. What? Mm. Like that was his complete narrative mm. was that people were coming to get a Centrelink check. Mm. And I thought, no, that's not, that's not the people I just saw. Well, but that's what we're told and that's what we're fed from the government, right, is it, that story that we've been fed for so long. And we don't hear enough about, or we don't hear about positive solutions. We don't hear about how, you know, our country was built on migration. Our country is I mean, built I on think migration. Indigenous Australians laugh at us yeah. when it comes to this issue because we all came by boat, right? So, um, but there's no, we have workforces at the moment that don't have skilled, that don't have enough skilled people. We have nurses that could use some help. We have people that are, um, coming here that have skills that we could utilise to inject into our industry and end up creating more jobs for Australians. But we never hear any talk about anything like that because that doesn't win votes and that's not on anybody's agenda. And I think right now, um, you know, the environment that we're in right now, it's 
asylum seekers and refugees are used as that thing that the government says that they have control of. It's that thing that they can say to us, you're afraid of this, we can protect you from it. Mm-hmm. And it's, it's, you know, it's disgusting. It's like people's lives are not currency. Um, that changes every election though. It, you know, that thing, it's interesting you say that every campaign, every election campaign mm-hmm. is driven on that. Here's something to be afraid of. Here's how we can protect you from it. It, yes. was, it was the GST. It was yeah. uh, Labor raising some tax and your mortgage might go up. It mm. was, um, oh, what was the other thing, workplace uh, reform. Yeah. Uh, and the last two, <laughs> I'll stop the boats. Yeah. Oh, my God, man. But the interesting thing is is that with asylum seekers and refugees is that people's opinions actually over, um, I was part of a talk for um one of the unis in, in Canberra, and they had this really interesting guy give a talk who, who works with statistics and he was like, over the last 12 years they, com- you know, combined all these stats and people's opinions actually don't change. It doesn't matter who's in. They, their opinion actually doesn't change. But where Australians stand is that we are all for humanitarian rights. We're all for um, helping people uh, in need. But if they've broken the law, then we will not give them a fair go. So, you know, what he's saying is that the package that is given to Australians, that as soon as we say they're, you know, they're coming by boat, they're breaking the law, then it is in our nature to say, well, no, we don't want somebody here that's going to break the law, which is interesting considering that, um, you know, white Australia is convicts. Right. How do you... You know, and I, I, I guess, you know, I asked this to Dr. Carl mm. about how does he talk to people who deny climate change? How do you talk to people who are just vehemently, vehemently opposed to... I start to talk to them about human rights in yeah. general. Like we don't have a Bill of Rights here. We need that. Mm-hmm. Um, and human rights don't get... I mean, you'd know from living in America that everybody knows their rights. Everybody oh, yeah. talks about human rights. Everybody knows about politics. They talk about politics because they want to know... Um, you know, their rights and what they are and are not able to do. And here we just don't talk about it enough. And so if we allow our government to compromise human rights for any um, part of the community, whether that's asylum seekers, whether it's disabled people, whether it's aged people or, or children, if we allow them to compromise on their rights with anybody, then make no mistake, it means that you're not safe. And so I have become really passionate not only about um, the rights of asylum seekers but also our rights as Australians to know all the information and know, um, you know, we talk, we hear a lot about asylum seekers are breaking the law but we don't hear about the laws that are being broken by the Australian government. I mean the Universal Declaration of um, Human Rights is in place for a reason. Uh, The rights of a child is in place for a reason Um, and I really strongly feel that especially, you know, something I'm really passionate about is the children caught in this, children Mm. that are in detention, children that are, you know, on Manus Island and Nauru and and all those kinds of things just should not be happening because the rights of a child are in a place, sorry, are in place to prevent children being mistreated and children have certain rights and Australians are simply not upholding them. Now, that means that we are all part of child abuse, whether people like to talk about it or don't like to talk about it. Um, 
yeah, it's a, I feel really strongly about it. I've, I've met children in detention. It is not good for their health in general. It's not good for their mental health. Um, and children have a right to be safe and they have a right to be cared for. Um, and when we have this kind of blanket way of dealing with it and when we have this blanket way of hiding all the information, which is what the government right now is doing. There are children that slip through the cracks that we don't hear about and we have children that are trying to commit suicide and that's in our care and that's not okay. Um, and that's happening because they're not okay. Um, a few years ago there was a case, um, there was a little boy that was in Villawood and there was huge amount of uproar about it. Um, this is a detention centre yeah, where yeah. people are brought for processing. Um, no, so Villawood is is uh, people that have stuff to do with ASIO. So, um, but he, as an example. That's our CIA. Yeah. 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 Um, but, at, you know, as an example, I mean, this little boy stopped eating this, and it was Four Corners um, had this huge report about it and everybody was up in arms because this little boy stopped speaking and stopped eating. Now, this happens with kids all the time, but we just don't hear about it anymore. And I met the woman that did that report and she was like, he, he actually got a payout and, it, and he was actually um, deemed to be, um, it was child abuse. Huh. And this happens all the time, but we no longer speak about it. And when I, I met her and we spoke about that case and she was so sad, I wish I could remember her name right now, but she was so sad about the fact that we're in a worse position now and we have more children that are in that situation that are not being taken care of and we're also not hearing about them because right now we have this, um, you know, our immigration minister who says we don't need to give any information because if we do, we're giving information to people smugglers and it is the biggest load of bullshit ever. I mean, we don't hear about the big business of arbitrary detention and how much money is made from that and how them not giving information helps that as well. But you know, Are you talking the people who, who build and run those centres? Yeah, I'm saying there's, you know, there's two sides to it. Mm. We only ever hear, um, and we have been for 30 or 40 years, but we only ever hear the negative when it comes to asylum seekers and refugees. It's So what about, I mean, you know, at a various, at a radio station that I used to work at, they had an, a name for the average listener mm -hmm. and they called her Betty Blacktown. Mm -hmm. which is the, uh, she's the average Australian. She lives in a suburb of Sydney called Blacktown. She has two kids. She yeah. has, you know, she has a husband. She might work part-time. She's got busy things to do. She gets her news from watching mm -hmm. mainstream morning television and a little bit of some, you know, maybe she catches a, 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 a newspaper in the day, a tabloid. Maybe she listens to a bit of talkback radio and maybe she watches a little bit of the six o'clock news and the current affair show after that but that's how she gets her news mm -hmm. so you're saying that her view is formed entirely by the opinions that she gets through those news sources yeah how do you how do you open the batting how what's the, how do you talk well, to asylum like seekers need to be able to tell their stories because yeah. we, you know we have no no i'm talking about you like how do you say you encounter this woman and yeah. she's upset at you how do you how do you talk about that with her you know, I usually find that the first thing is the fact that it's not illegal to seek asylum. Whether you come by boat, whether you come by plane, it's not illegal. Um, you have to be processed. As, you know, uh, the tool of asylum is there for a reason and we want it to be there because if 
you know, touch wood, hopefully nothing ever happens here in Australia. War maybe we can't comprehend, but what if it's an environmental issue that means that we might have to seek asylum? I would like that in place for my children, so we need to uphold it. Um, but usually as soon as we have that first conversation about the fact that seeking asylum is actually not breaking the law, it's a whole different conversation. Uh-huh. So, but you're saying that the narrative is that these people who come by a boat yeah. are illegal. Yeah, I think there's so much focus put on that. that who called them that illegal people, first? Uh, well, it's been happening for 30 or 40 years, but I think John Howard, when he did that speech, when he was like, we will decide who will come here and we will do it, that that was really uh-huh. a, a big turning point when right. people started going and, you know, people started going, well, or, and I've had debates with friends of mine who who I consider to be really educated, who yeah. really open-minded, who have said to me outright, like, no, refugees and asylum seekers, they're breaking the law. Huh. And we don't, um, you know, there's we just don't get the education. We don't get told what the difference is between an asylum seeker and a refugee. We don't get told um, enough about human our own human rights. And so why would we be concerned with those of, Mm-hmm. of others you know and I guess that's why I really feel um strongly about uh human rights being spoken more about here Gillian Triggs who's uh at the human rights commission now like we had a conversation about it and she was like if this was in in around the time of Vietnam like people would be in the streets um protesting and we have seen more of that but Everybody would be in the streets protesting, saying you can't treat people like this. And it's it's a human story. It's about compassion. It's about, um, you know, I saw this really great cartoon which uh, was of a boat and uh, coming into Australia and someone who's on the shore in Australia says, where are you from? And the people in the boat say, planet Earth. You know, it's like we're all human. We have to take care of each other and... Um, we know what's wrong and we know what's right and treating people, um, mistreating people is actually not an Australian way. What are the common arguments against folks who are trying to come here, people who are trying to come here? What are the common arguments against them that are complete misconceptions besides they are illegal? Um, Well, I think that one of like they're coming here to get the dole and, you know, coming here to use up our resources and whatever, I think that's a huge huge one um all the asylum seekers and refugees that i've met are incredibly hard working and all have are so grateful to be safe that they want to get straight in and start contributing to you know to our system i mean if you're in america straight away you're able to work mm-hmm. and you're not able to work if you're not proved to be um to be a refugee but from day one, when you when you're there, you're like you're able to start contributing, and I think that's really important. And I think here, what we you know at the moment we have these visa situations where people can't work and people can't go to school. I went to an English graduation for one of my um, refugee friends, and I watched the Australian teacher stand up and cry in front of everybody about how since Abbott's gotten in, she's had to turn people away, and you know for them, they're seeing people that are hungry for for learning and hungry to learn the language so they can be a part of our community. Um, 
And I don't think we talk about that enough. We, we're just not mm. hearing the positive stories. What about the, you know, the idea that people say they're economic refugees? I think it's a load of crap. I think yeah. it's a really good spin. I think that, uh, you know, look, I think it's human nature is to go where you have the best life possible. Um, human nature is to take care of your children. And I think that we have a lot of generalisations when we talk about people that are supposedly, you know, economic um, migrants. It's that just because you have money does not mean that you are not under threat of persecution. It's two totally different things. Um, one thing that really gets on my goat is when um, people will say, well, what about, you know, how do they have enough money to send their son on that boat from Afghanistan? Okay, if I was in that situation and my brother was the first person that I knew was going to be under threat and probably killed, I would borrow money from every single person that I know. I would sell everything that I had to get my brother on a boat, on a plane, on a train, any way out of there. And I have yet to meet an Australian that having that conversation that they haven't said, yeah, you know what, you're right, I would too. Right. But it's just, I guess it's just easy to have the simple, not nah, don't like it. It's just easy to have that as an opinion. Yeah, and I think that... They can move on and, you know, carry on with watching some UFC. Yeah. Or whatever it is they want to watch. And there's also, I mean, look, white Australia policy still exists right. and it's it's in our culture whether we like to talk about it or not. Um, and it is interesting if you ask people that are very extreme on their, their opinions, and I did this kind of tour 10 days in... Uh, 10, 10 days, 10 towns... 10,000 hot potatoes and we did it in country towns in Australia and we had some really uh, heated discussions and really extreme opinions. And there are some people here who say, you know, if you're white, that's okay and if you're black, I don't want you here. <laughs> and considering that we are, uh, you know, Australia is belongs to our Indigenous brothers and sisters who are beautifully black, um, that's... St still stumps me that right. people, you know, have that that opinion. How do you say compassionate? Because <laughs> after like after ten minutes of having that kind of conversation with someone, I'd just be like, I'm I'm done. Well, it's how hard, do you do it? <laughs> but you come back to <clears throat> that thing of human rights are not spoken about enough here, yeah. and you come back to I go back to seeing the statistics of. Um, you know, the positive opinion of Australians will go up to 75% if they think that it's a humanitarian cause. So Australians, by and large, will do the right thing. They want to do the right thing. So you kind of, I make myself go back to that place mm -hmm. and have compassion for the fact that they simply don't have all the information and that's not their fault, you know. So the little, just you briefly mentioned a thing called the hot potato. This is the, you yeah. work with these these folks and the, the hot potato is that this is this hot potato issue. Yeah, yeah. So I, well, I was part of this documentary and this tour called um, The Hot Potato, which um, I did with the Asylum Seeker Resource Centre. I'm an ambassador for them. So I came back from LA, jumped in a van and we went around 10 towns in 10 days just before the election gave away 10,000 hot potatoes and talked to people about their opinions about asylum seekers. And, um, you know, two things happened. I fell in love with country Australia again and 
just continued to say, I understand why people want to come here and I'm not going to hold that against them. And the positive was is that as soon as we were, you know, we were busting 10 myths which started with that it's not illegal to seek asylum and as soon as we started having those conversations there were, were of course still some people who were very opposing but there were many people who were actually really open to having a conversation and to finding out more and who by the end of, you know, having a hot potato, having a discussion, reading some information, having another chat were open to, okay, these are people who are not safe. They're being persecuted. They need our help. Oh, they want to come here and work. We're in a country town. Actually, we need more people in industry here. Great. And, you know, there's towns uh, like Shepparton, I think is one of the examples, where they have done that Mm. and they've had great success with it. Is it just that people fear change? Yeah, and I think... uh, I think we we want something to be angry about, right? And we want um, we want our government to do something for us. We don't quite always know what that is, and if there's something that they can tell us to be afraid of, and then you know that equals them doing something for us, then we kind of uh, you know we want that. We want them to do something for us, and I think that that's where the asylum seeker issue continues to be, sadly used as that thing for politicians to say you're afraid and and we can help stop this for you you clearly keep in touch with and and work with refugees yeah still yeah to this day for people that are listening to this it might still feel a bit funny in the tummy whenever they yeah. think about this what would you say about these people they're just human beings they're human beings and they've got these great stories to tell and they've got great ethics about hard work and what it means to fight for your life and fight for your safety and there's so much that can be gained through knowing them through understanding them and through sharing skills stories whatever it is like that's that's what it means to be part of the world not just Australian and that's how we protect our way of life is to be more Australian which is giving people a fair go I believe it's the second verse of our national anthem, which quite often doesn't get quite <laughs> yeah. often doesn't get sung at football games. For those who've come across the seas, we've boundless plains to share. Yeah. Right. I wrote that in 1901. Yeah, because they understood, you know, this is that that's what Australia is about. And imagine if the indigenous people turned us all away, right? Right. When we came on our boats. Are they going to do series three? Go back to where you came from with an indigenous Australia? I hope they do That'd because be amazing, that's, right? I think that's, you know, that's something else that I'm really passionate about mm. is, is the rights of Indigenous people and the fact that we just, I mean, we're still not getting that right. we got so far to go and it's disgusting. For, for people that, we've talked about all the heavy stuff here. Um, yeah. It's not uh, positive. <laughs> oh, well, you know, <gasps> you're clearly passionate about this. Yeah. And you've clearly found... Would you feel that you found your calling doing this? I don't know if it's a calling. I just think it's like I've had that experience. I'm a good person. I follow my heart. My heart is now open to it. I can't close it to it Hmm. anymore. Um, I like working one-on-one with people and um, I think I've been able to do that more through this cause than I have in, you know, in my other kind of uh, Line, but it's not really a line of work. 
Um, however, I have just trained to be a doula, which is a, a non-medical birth support person. And part of why I decided to do that was so that I could offer a service that was something that, you know, language would not be a barrier or, you know, it was just something that I could offer to women wherever I was in the world and uh, and the particular college, the Australian Doula College that I studied at has this charity arm called the Doula Heart Network and we work with asylum seekers and refugees. So it's that is like now I have a skill, now I have something where it's not just me campaigning, um, it's actually a contribution of something good and a service that I can offer because it was too late for me to go and you know, go to uni and study something else. But this, uh, mm-hmm. you know, I could do and I, yeah, and I love it. If, if people want to support the work you do, where, where do they go? Uh, I am an ambassador for Welcome to Australia and also the Asylum Seeker Resource Centre in Melbourne, which is a really grassroots organisation. Malcolm Fraser is also a, um, an ambassador for them. And they're amazing. They do everything from providing meals to legal assistance and they have this great community for children and families there and I think they're probably a really worthwhile organisation for two reasons, for what they do with asylum seekers but also for the information, the education that they give, not only about the rights of asylum seekers but about the rights of Australians when it comes to asylum seekers and how they can help. Right. I'll make sure I put a link up to that stuff. Yeah, cool. So folks can... (laughs) Get on board. Um, we talked about a lot of stuff today. Um, um, do, you, do, yeah. you, do you feel okay? You were nervous yeah. at the start? No, I'm all right. Yeah. Are you sure? <laughs> yeah, I'm good. I'm good. Yeah? Yeah. Cool. I rambled a no, bit. No, you didn't. That's okay. I wasn't rambling. You were... That's the beauty of this medium. Because mm. some issues, it's like when people are trying to explain what's happening in Israel and Gaza in a minute-long news yeah. piece. It's like, are you shitting me? Yeah. You could take 10 hours of TV news yeah. and not make it anywhere close to figuring out what was going on there. Mm. So it's important, I feel, to speak at length about the true thing of what's going on. Yeah. Using people's lives to win elections is it's not, not okay. okay. <laughs> Generally, it's not okay with me. No. As an Australian, as someone who's become Australian, someone who's mm. proud to call this country my home, as someone who's grew up with two people that left their countries, left everything mm. they loved. Someone sent me a photo of my mom in Lithuania before they had to flee. It's like mm. she was this beautiful, beautiful cherub-like mm. child just living and then she's on the back of a horse and cart and she's living in some internment camp. And then my father at 24 having to leave Prague when the Russians came, you know, it's like basically his friends just said, you got to go like yeah. tonight. Yeah. There's no fucking around, buddy. Mm. If you don't, the, the tanks are coming. Grabbed the nearest bag, threw some underpants in it, and split. That was it. Like heavy duty, man. Yeah, you know? and it's not—it's just not something that we understand. Because I guess you know, people they, as we all do, we we look at the world through our own experience. You know, yeah. that's that's the lens we look at. And you know, the worst thing that can happen to us is the worst thing we think that can happen to someone else. Mm. Generally, so it just does. Take and that's not a bad thing. It no. Doesn't like it doesn't make. And that's something that we talk about like when we're on the tours, like it's really important. It doesn't make you a bad person if you have that opinion. It doesn't mean that you've done the wrong thing or it's like if you don't have the information, then you simply don't know and it's okay to then change your mind. Because people think, might be a bit ashamed that they have felt yeah. 
definitely. You know. I've met people who are and who don't want to talk about it because they're ashamed that once they find out the information and, and you know, they see that seeking asylum is completely legal, it's, you know, yeah, I mean, I don't want to start rambling on again, but, yeah, once once people know the reasons and the story and they want to change their mind, it's, it's okay, great. Mm-hmm. It's, we're always free to change our minds yeah. every day. And that's, a, I guess that's a thing to be hopeful for. Definitely. <laughs> Thanks for coming to my house. Thanks for having me. Absolutely. I'm going to take your photo. <laughs> That's funny. You're that a trained. So That's my reaction to that. Fuck. <laughs> You're a trained professional. I'm sure you'll be okay. It's on that Polaroid camera over there, so don't worry. That's it. That's the show. That's Imogen Bailey. Find her online at Imogen, I-M-O-G-E-N underscore B-A-I-L-E-Y. Let her know what you thought of the show. Tell her that you heard her here. If you like the show, please share the link to the link to however you listen to it. If you listen to it on the website or on an app or whatever, just share it with somebody or your community. It's up for you. Up to you. Next week, again, it's the first birthday episode. It's a Q&A episode. Get your questions in because I would love to answer your questions because I can't make the show without you. I watch the downloads through every week. I watch them get bigger and bigger and bigger and it just blows my mind. And I get such satisfaction making this show and I've got to thank you for that because you can't make a show without people listening. So thank you. So look after yourselves this week. Live with presence and gratitude in all that you do. And most of all, sleep well. Dream of beautiful things. Talk to you next week. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. Hold up. 
What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.